and you are now making more and more of these huge stores that are having all this processed food and all those things. And like, you're going further and further away from the true essence of what food is. It's not just sustenance. And like, we're, we're losing that. So that, that's why I'm striving for that community to kind of bring back the idea of like, what food is really supposed to be about. Welcome to Urban Limitrophe, a Toronto-based podcast exploring the various initiatives happening in cities across the African continent to creatively solve problems, support their communities, create vibrant urban spaces, and build better cities overall. I'm your host, Alexandra, and join me as I explore this episode's topic, food security. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, also known as the FAO, Food security is a situation that exists when all people, at all times, have physical, social, and economic access to sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. On the flip side, food insecurity is the absence of all of that. In other words, the inability to access food. It is a multifaceted problem that affects countries across the globe, And of course, there's cities, where the issues of food insecurity are often amplified. Food security has four pillars that help to describe it. Availability, access, utilization, and stability. But many argue that there should be a fifth pillar. Appropriateness, specifically cultural appropriateness, as it impacts the other four pillars in a variety of ways. Think about it. Culture shapes what type of food is grown and what is considered edible and therefore available. Culture determines how food is prepared, what it is eaten with, and what times of the year it can be eaten, and therefore its accessibility and utilization. Culture can also dictate how food is processed and stored, and therefore its stability. Unfortunately, the importance of the cultural dimension of food is often overlooked. However, Overlooking culture in the battle against food insecurity has far-reaching impacts. In developing areas of the world, like in Africa, rapid urbanization imposes dietary patterns that aren't always affordable, healthy, or value the accessibility and availability of traditional crops and foods, leading to a number of nutritional struggles and a decrease in cultural appropriate foods. While for high immigrant receiving countries like Canada, where westernized cultural foods are significantly more represented and accessible than others, Newcomers, on top of facing a new climate, new language, new everything, also have to deal with new diets and ingredients, which can create challenges as they try to find and cook foods that connect them back to their roots, and unfortunately, contributes to declining mental and physical health and increasing food insecurity rates among this demographic. Properly considering culture in the fight against food insecurity takes reimagining the role of food in our lives, and understanding that food is a source of memory, history, celebration, and learning. And that is exactly what one initiative out of Toronto, called the Abiba Men Project, is trying to do. By harnessing the potential of food to create intercultural ties, the Abiba Men Project celebrates African cuisine, cultures, and people, all while supporting broader food insecurity efforts taking place in the city through its donations to the African Food Basket, which is a local organization working towards establishing food sovereignty and food justice for Toronto's Black community 
which is particularly affected by the issue of food insecurity, as in Canada, black households are 3.56 times more likely to be food insecure than white households. I caught up with Rachel Adjay, the chef and founder of this initiative, whom I actually had the pleasure to interview in 2020 for an Instagram web series the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council did on COVID-19 in the food system to learn more about our work developing the Abibi Man project and see how the project has evolved since we last spoke. Let's tune in. So you're just going to have to do, I think, a quick recap just for the people who aren't following the whole story, especially from, you know, our other interview with the TYFPC. So my first question is really like, what is the Abibi Man project? Okay, so the Abibi Man project is an initiative focused on African culinary exploration. So the concept is to get people more, you know, connected to the unique and diverse food cultures across the African continent. And by doing this, people will be more willing in the long run to actually, you know, enjoy the food that we have to offer where it's not really accepted in Western food culture at the moment. And this project is an attempt to push past that. And it's multi-sided where it's an educational thing. So not only am I just providing you with the knowledge and the tools, you're also doing some learning on your end. So the goal is to fill gaps. So you have more of a connection to it versus just being handed everything on a platter. And all of the profit that is made gets donated to African Food Basket, which helps um, families in Toronto facing food injustice, food insecurity, things along that line. And it's, it makes it really beneficial because now you're educating people about the food, then you have the connection to the food of people who are in desperate need of it and are getting that help that they need. So it's, you know, really based on the foundation that food is a connector, you know, food is essential. And that's what the, the main push of this project is. And how has it evolved since its initial launch, like way back in October 2020? So initially, um, the concept had been to like do dinner parties and have a salon and have artists come and things along that line. But obviously, with COVID restrictions, we couldn't do things like that. Um, so what I had thought to do was do a monthly pop-up and offer like, you know, just a quick and easy pickup, hot food, uh, a, like a soup or a stew re- representing um, a region and then do like a vegan option, have a pastry um, and keep it very simple and very approachable. I have now moved past doing the hot food for the moment for logistical issues and I'm now still doing like spices and condiments because those are easily done, easily stored. But I am now doing, I'm now doing like African chocolate. So either made with African beans, um, using African flavors, using indigenous ingredients. And that's like an extremely, extremely approachable way to get people familiarized with flavors because they don't think about it the same way that they think about food, right? It's a treat, it's an indulgence. So I'm using that as a gateway um, and I find that it's been very effective so far. You you mentioned that, you know, for the dishes, you're sourcing local ingredients, local foods. Can you like walk us through that process of sourcing all these different materials? Yeah. So actually sourcing all my ingredients is quite, quite a workout. Um, <laughs> I get them from a lot of different places. So like certain spices I'll get from like an African grocery store, um, certain herbs and things along that line. If I needed like, um, 
you know, some cassava flour or palm oil, things along those lines, I get it from there, especially because I know the products that they're getting in are from the continent for sure. Um, and that at least it's going from point A to point B and there's not so much middleman work. Um, I do buy a lot of spices from Indian grocery stores as well because there's a lot of crossover in spices and they have good availability, good prices. Um, my chocolate, I, I really want to get chocolate from this one supplier based in Ghana, but I'm working on that. At the moment, I just get it from a wholesaler and I use Madagascar, Tanzanian and Ghanaian cocoa beans. Mm -hmm. And for my coffee though, I use Ethiopian coffee beans from Moffer Coffee in Toronto. They have two coffee shops and I get my beans from there. Um, the tea that I use is also from a Toronto-based company that gets their tea leaves from Kenya. Um, the name is escaping me right now, so I can't remember. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Any dairy that I use, I get local organic dairy. If I'm ever using meat, I also will use Ontario GMO-free, hormone-free meat if I can. I'm trying my best to keep this, you know, not only just about the exciting food, I want to keep it ethical too. Because um, mm. for me, like also, one, because I'm donating my profit I want people to feel confidence in what they're purchasing. So I want it to be worth it. So if mm -hmm. there's anything I can do to make sure that they're getting the best of the best product, that's what I want. That's well, great to hear. And so, you know, what has been the most fulfilling part of doing this project so far? Um, I think for me, it's just sharing my passion and sharing like my cultural experiences with others. Um, it has been quite a ride this year that um, it's been more acceptable right to speak about the black experience for example and to really put that on the main stage and that is one of the things that is pushing behind this business so for me like being able to cook my own food at a professional level is amazing to see other people engaging and being curious about it is also really great because that means for the chefs coming in after me the young black chefs they will get the opportunity perhaps to you know, have their food more accepted as well. And it doesn't have to be a matter of we're all cooking French food and Italian food and whatever it may be. So that's been very great for me. And even just interacting with people, um, getting to talk to people about things that they know nothing about, you know, and people being eager to learn because sometimes it's very hard to teach someone who doesn't want to be taught. And I've found that so far, anybody who has engaged, even if they haven't, purchased anything or come back to me about it, they were still, I piqued some interest. And whether that's a seed that I've planted that won't sprout for another five years, it's still something. So I can't complain about any of that. <laughs> and so what has been the most uh, challenging aspect of this project? Execution is quite stressful for me only because I'm one person and I want to do a lot. Like there's so many ideas I have. I get new ideas every day. I got like four new ideas for chocolate bars just this morning. <laughs> and I can only facilitate so much, you know, in this time, it's really not safe for me to be, uh, you know, involving too many people to be working with, like other than people already in my, like my roommates live with me, right? So if they can offer a hand, that's something. Um, but even then, you know, I want to do big and great and exciting things. I want to have, you know, a full course dinner and I can't do that. And that's been hard to kind of just sit and wait and 
you know, I love making spice blends, but sometimes, <laughs> you know, I want to do more or even just like the admin sign of, of this, like doing all the accounting, doing all the website design. Um, I want to like grow the blog I have on the website, engage in a forum. And like, that's, it's, it's not like it just happens, right? I have to mm-hmm. actually do the work to get that done. And it's very tough balancing uh, the production side versus the marketing um, versus the internal business work. So yeah, it's, it's been challenging, but I'm also learning a lot because I've never done things like this before. This is my first business surprise, you know, at 23, (laughs) I accidentally started a business. So, um, yeah, it's been a learning experience for myself. So it's a good challenge. So what I really enjoy about you know, the BBN project is this explicit connection between, you know, highlighting and promoting this often overlooked um, culture and history behind African cuisine and like dishes, but also that it's connecting it to modern issues such as like food justice and food insecurity, you know, through your connection with the African food basket, like you mentioned, but also like racial equity, you know, by encouraging people from all walks of life to try African food. And so just focusing on that first aspect of the project. So what catalyzed your interest in exploring the culture and history of uh, African food? So I've always had like curiosity and culture and history in general. Um, So that was already an easy thing for me to want to dive into. But um, after uh, going to a lot of like protests and marches this summer and just seeing like the black community, also just seeing our supporters, it was kind of like the spark that I needed to be like, I need to do something. Like this is the moment. If I don't capitalize on this moment, you know, I'm missing out. I, I need to do something to give back to my community. So I really thought about what I could do personally, right? And my connection, you know, my field, my speciality is food. So I'm like, how can I make the connect between the Black struggle, food, culture, society today? And this was kind of how the Abibi Mom Project was born based on just connecting those pieces together. So then I want to highlight another aspect of the BB Man project. So I know that you're using food as a bridge, which you mentioned, you know, that connects people from different backgrounds and, and you're kickstarting these conversations around the issues facing the Black community, you know, encourage, encouraging people to appreciate African culture, you know, and ultimately like Black people as well through that connection. Um, yeah. I also see this project as a bridge that, you know, connects people back to their roots and helps provide a sense of familiar, familiarity in like a city that for many can be like unfamiliar, especially for newcomers. And so... Yeah. I wonder if there are different experiences that you're seeing when, like what has been the most surprising interaction you've had to say with someone who's familiar with African cuisine, you know, versus someone who, who wasn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do get a, a good amount of people who either like are from Africa, like, and have moved to various places or um, people who have just had experiences, have traveled there or just have the background and grew up here but people will come in and be like, I'm familiar with this product. My mom used to make it for me. Or, you know, this tastes just like what I used to have when I was little. What did you do to this recipe? And like things like that are very <laughs> endearing because I love bringing up nostalgia for people accidentally, right? Like, I don't know what they've had. I don't know what they've tasted, but it's that strong connection through food that I'm now making them feel this emotion, right? That is so strong because of just something as simple as five ingredients that I've now mixed together but for them, it sparks something else entirely. And like things like that I've appreciated, but there's also pressure, (laughs) you know, when someone says, oh, I've had this before and they come in and I'm like, oh my gosh, if it doesn't taste like what they've (laughs) had before, what am I going to do? 
And I've also had people who have, they were hesitant to have things, you know? I had one woman who had um, omotuo, which is like a rice, a pounded rice ball. And she said she was, a, she didn't know what to expect. She didn't think she would enjoy the texture. You know, it seemed off-putting to her and she loved it. Mm. She said, you know, I never thought to do that with rice. It's such a great idea. It's so delicious. I'm like, yep. Yeah. And people have been doing it for centuries <laughs> and they've been <laughs> loving it too. And it's conversations like that, that um, they don't surprise me. Right. Cause some people are their food that they've had, right. They haven't experienced anything like this, which is kind of the point, but like, it's getting those both sides when people are like afraid, but then, you know, kind of get accustomed to it versus the people who are like my tough critics. We're like, <laughs> okay, you pass. So yeah. Yeah. I could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine the pressure around that, but I know you've definitely like surmounted it time and time again. So that's great. <laughs> and so I want to bring us back to the other interview we had for the Toronto Youth Food Policy Council, because you said something then that really stuck with me um, since then. And so we were talking about like oxtail and then you said something about a friend and their grandmother who was saying how like expensive it had gotten over the years to buy. And then you said something along the lines that our food is repackaged and sold back to us at a at like a higher price. And that really hit home to me because it reminded me that as much as that is happening here, um, it's also happening in cities around the world, but also specifically thinking about, you know, cities in the African continent and food insecurity is, is being created in part by this as the cost of food is, you know, a lot higher than the salaries that, that we have. And I think one aspect of addressing, you know, food insecurity that you're doing is with like, by connecting with the African Food Basket, you know, which has the specific focus on working towards food sovereignty and injustice, but also by allowing people to access their culturally appropriate foods. So I'm just wondering, given your focus on like celebrating African cuisine and making it more accessible, you know, what role do you feel culturally appropriate food plays in food justice and food security? I feel like it's one of the most important things because if for some people, if the connection, the only connection you have to back home or your culture is food, taking that away from someone can be really tough, right? You know, if you are used to eating this one thing for years and now you come to Canada and you can't afford it because it is now an overpriced luxury item when you know what it truly is, right? But even that, like there's certain products that I use like Moringa, for example. Um, Moringa itself is not particularly expensive. There's a plant, you know, it grows out of the ground. Um, and here you can only really get it in a powdered form but people are now selling it as a superfood, right? So as soon as you put the name superfood on it, the price point triples at least. And for anybody who grew up traditionally having Moringa, they can't have it here. They can't have it the way they want it. Obviously, like the fact that it's coming all the way from, you know, somewhere in West Africa doesn't help, right? Because we can't, unfortunately, there's a lot of things we can't grow in Canada as well. So that really doesn't help the case for many people coming from tropical warmer places but you know even the idea of like a kid going to school and eating their traditional food and being teased like it food is so important that like if you if you break that bond like if it, you can't normalize the fact like this is not to say that you claim ownership over the food but saying you know this is food from where I'm from I have a connection to it it's important to me you can't take that away from somebody. If they're 
you know, they're getting a limited amount of food, they're getting a low pay, they have a family to feed, and, you know, they can't pay their bills, the least that can be done is that they have that one little bit of joy through food. You know, it seems so silly and so simple, but like, it makes a difference. It really, really makes a difference. Yeah, I can't imagine coming from all so many miles away and then arriving in this new city and then, you know, everything around you is different. And then also <laughs> the food is different and having to be accustomed to these new palates and new tastes, but, you know, not being able to access your culturally, you know, appropriate food that, I don't know, I feel like, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to be able to access it time and time again, but I can't imagine not being able to is that's like, you know, a part of yourself in one way. Yeah, exactly. And so now looking forward, um, you have so many things on the go. So I was wondering, like, what's next for the ABP Men Project? I mean, what next? What's next kind of depends on how this pandemic goes, <laughs> honestly. Um, you know, in summer, there's going to be more abilities to do more outdoor activities. So that's going to be good. And, you know, I'll probably try and plan ahead to do things like that. So whether it's like, a picnic of some sorts or just like a barbecue trying to do more like community-based things as well um I I actually spoke to um a woman yesterday at the pop-up who she she's a vice principal at a school and she was saying you know every year they get like some sort of product and they give it out to all the kids they'll have a speaker and things like that and I want to if I can you know I'm not one thing I will say honestly and truly about this project I am learning as the project goes, right? It is impossible for anybody, especially me, to know any, everything about African food. Like, it's just not possible. And I've learned what I know, right? But there's always more learning to be had. You know, if somebody came and told me that I'm doing this wrong or whatever it might be, then we're growing. So, like, if there can be more connection where I'm finding, you know, uh, if there's somebody from North Africa who wants to be the specialist on North African cuisine, someone from East Africa, South Africa, and then uh, that way, you know, it helps fill in some of those gaps where I'm giving a very broad picture because not only is it the easiest for me to achieve, but it's the most approachable, but obviously down the line for me, I want to focus in more. Like I want you to know what they're making in that neighborhood in Akka and I, I want it to be specific. Right. But obviously right now, that's a little too much for people. So for growth, I don't see any limitations. You know, the, the end goal would be to have African cuisine in general accepted in food culture the way that Eurocentric food is, even the way that like Mexican food would be or Chinese and things along that line. But also, I don't want it to be discounted as ethnic food because I am tired of that, you know just because the food is coming from a different place, it doesn't mean it's of any less quality. If I am using the same ingredients and I've just now flavored it a different way, cooked it a different way, why can you sell yours at $100 and mine should be five? Mm. Because then those cooks and chefs that are coming from those countries that want to share their food, they will never know true success because no matter what, they're being discounted. And if it's not their community that's only supporting them, which is usually the case, right? You you find that mostly Jamaican people go to Jamaican restaurants, which is fine. Um, but anybody can go to a French restaurant and you're going to pay big money for it. Mm -hmm. So I want it to be a community thing. Toronto is so diverse. Like there is nothing stopping us. It's just a matter of changing mindset and moving forward. 
Yeah, that's really interesting what you're saying about creating that sense of community, because I think that's also something you had touched on in our other interview. That was something that also you wanted to cultivate and to create with the work that you're doing. So I wonder, how is the ABB Man Project helping like to create that sense of community around this topic? Well, I'm trying my best to engage, right, with everyone who wants to talk about things, who wants to be more knowledgeable, people who want to tell me their stories. And like, I see it as creating a hub, right, for everyone coming from different walks of life, different parts of the world, and like, seeking knowledge through food, and growing from that. And it seems like, in in essence, right, the idea of the Abibimon project is very multifaceted, but at its core, it's about community, because that's what food is, right? You, you eat food with a group of people over a table, you're sharing conversation, there's there's so many things to be experienced. And like, that is what's going to push this forward. That's what's going to push any, like you can't push anything forward without discussion, you know? Mm-hmm. So I I really want to build that community and strengthen that community. Like all, all the people are here, you know? You can find someone from every single country. If I, if I asked them to put their hand up, they'd probably <laughs> appear. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a matter of connecting us, right? And- you know, even something as silly as I, I went, it's not silly, actually, I went to Mississauga, um, I went to the Filipino grocery store. And like, in the Philippines, it's made of, of, of a bunch of islands. Mm-hmm. And every island has a different, you know, cultural aspects, they have different foods and things of that sort, but it's still a hub for all the Filipino people. And I know, obviously, the size of the Philippines versus the size of the continent of Africa are not <laughs> same scale by any means Mm -hmm. but the idea of like you know if there was an African grocery store for example that was you know large and shiny Mm -hmm. and fancy very welcoming where everyone could congregate and then other people would feel comfortable walking in as well it's just the idea of having the open door right and then you know in the like I'm using this as a metaphor but honestly it would be a cool thing to have too but like having the shelves nicely organized and you have rows and you're like okay this row here is Uganda you know this Mm -hmm. row here is Cameroon and like everything nice and perfectly placed and there's a guide helping you through every step you know and then we all congregate together and saying oh yeah I use peanuts in this dish too oh you know I I like cashews for example it's just it's the little things like that for me that are like they seem so simple and so easy and it's a matter of like why don't we have this yet and mm-hmm. how can we take the steps to get there? Because mm-hmm. I know we can, I know we can do this. Yeah, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like the way I access different, let's say African products or different different products that conduct me to like my different cultures is I like shop around at, at different grocery stores. Like I know if I go to this grocery store in this neighborhood, I can find this. But if I go to this grocery store in this neighborhood, I can find this, but it's never, but if you go to like the more, um, I guess like commercial, kind of grocery stores you may not find these type of products that you're looking for but mm-hmm. yeah that's a that's that would be really fantastic to have but it's also interesting because I've seen that in some grocery stores they started doing that but yeah it's never really with African products it's like they'll have rows that are lab- labeled you know South Asian food you know Mexican food you know Mediterranean or whatever it is but I haven't seen an African aisle yet <laughs> so that's, yeah that, yeah I that's interesting they exist in like I will say in the Chinese grocery store in Rexdale um, mm-hmm. near where I grew up they do actually carry quite a bit of African products surprisingly mm-hmm. um, but also not surprisingly because they're catering to their community 
there's a lot of African, like West African people. So they have Nigerian and Ghanaian products. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they, there's also a lot of uh, Jamaican people, Trinidadian people, Guyanese people. So they have those products as well. And I'm like, it's really that simple. Mm-hmm. You know who your customer base is and have that in the store. <laughs> it's as simple as that. But when you think about centralized areas of Toronto, they cater to the majority, which is Eurocentric white people, Mm -hmm. right? And then they have those foods or they have whatever fad food is going on at the time. But like the thing that I find is that in general, people who come to Canada like to cling to their foods, right? Mm -hmm. And Canada's supposed to be all about the diversity. So why don't you have that reflected in our food stores? Mm. Like, yes, I know it, it gives people coming from those places an opportunity to open their own business right like every Indian grocery store shop owner like that's their that's their big thing that's their opportunity and I'm not saying to take away that opportunity I'm saying to allow for growth Mm -hmm. like they perhaps want to have a big superstore but they can't right that's not something they can facilitate and you are now making more and more of these huge stores that are having all this processed food and all those things and like you're going further and further away from the true essence of what food is. It's not just sustenance. And yeah. like, we're, we're losing that. So that that's why I'm striving for that community to kind of bring back the idea of like, what food is really supposed to be about. Yeah, I like that. Food is not just sustenance. It's so much more. And I hope, and I think that people are waking up more and more to this idea and understanding this more and more because yeah, it was such a vital, it really grounds us um, yeah, grounds us as a community, grounds us as people, grounds us, grounds us in our culture. So that's great. And so my last question is, how can people like support your work? So I have, with lots of pain, <laughs> made a website. Uh, <laughs> website designing is not easy at all. Um, but I am open to all help. You know, I, I know I started this project alone. And like, this is something that I'm very passionate and excited about. But, you know, if anybody ever wants to offer a feature and be like, oh, hey, could I write about my story and put a blog post out? Could I tell you about this spice blend that I like to make? Or even, you know, just um, obviously supporting the project, buying product, you can donate towards. So I, I have on my site because everything that I do, all like after all the deductions are made, all the profit goes to African Food Basket. Um, at the moment, I'm not paying myself because mm-hmm. I can't afford to, right? I'm not making enough revenue. But um, I do have an option to donate directly to African Food Basket, as well as to donate to the Abibigon Project, which that would go towards research, that would go towards packaging and little things. So then in the end, I deduct less later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I am very passionate about this and I am putting a lot of myself into it. Mm-hmm. Um not the, and I'm not going to stop doing that regardless of <laughs> who helps me or what. But, mm-hmm. you know, if there's somebody who has a specific knack for social media or that and they want to offer help, you know, mm-hmm. that's something that I would love to grow. And like, it also will benefit me, right? If I can have more social media reach and more people can find me, then there could be more sales. So then, you know, further down the line, I could probably hire people to also help me and build this business Mm-hmm. where right now, as much as I'd like it to grow, I can only keep it so large because I am one person. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great. 
yeah, creating a community within a community that you're trying to create. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I only wish you continued success and continued growth. And yeah, I look forward to seeing all the different ideas that you have to share <laughs> and eat, <laughs> eat them as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm excited to see what comes out of my head too, because <laughs> sometimes it's just very, very random and accidental. And um, I think that's one of the most fun parts about it. I get to do, I get to have fun. I get to do exploration where before, you know, I just given instruction <laughs> and given a, a concrete box. I mean, like you have to do things in these, this parameters where Africa is so vast, you know, like Ibibiman mm. literally translates to, well, technically the land where black people are from. Right. So I have really no limitations, right. Anywhere that black people exist, I can touch on that point. So if I wanted to talk about something that they're eating in Grenada versus something they're having in Mauritius, it really, it's up to me. And like, that is something that I'm very thrilled to do and explore more because even things like that, who knows where Mauritius is? Who knows about Mauritius's culture, mm-hmm. right? I, if I can even shed a little bit of light, I'm, I'm doing something, you know, mm-hmm. that's the way I see it. Ultimately, food is more than just fuel. For many, it is a lifeline, tying them back to their history and traditions, and most importantly, their community. Food is a conversation starter. It is an intergenerational learning tool. It is a source of comfort, which in these hectic times is needed more than ever, and needs to be considered more than ever, as COVID-19 has left more and more people food insecure. As I mentioned before, this is a multifaceted issue of which I have only begun to scratch the surface of in this episode. But what I do know is culture is a key part of the equation in creating food security. Thanks for listening to this episode. To learn more about Rachel, the Abibiman Project, and to order some of her tasty culinary creations, visit www.theabibimanproject.com. For this episode's show notes and other resources, make sure to visit www.urbanlimitrofe.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram to stay up to date and stay tuned for new episodes coming your way every month. Until next time.